नमस्ते एंड वेलकम आई एम जैनील दलाल एंड यू आर लिसनिंग टू द डिजाइन एम बी ए विच इज अ रियल लाइफ एम बी ए फॉर डिजाइनर्स यू विल लर्न हाउ टू लॉन्च साइड हसो एंड लेवल अप योर डिजाइन करियर फ्रॉम इंटरव्यूज विद रॉक स्टार डिजाइनर्स illustrator with a passion of visualizing ideas and teaching people how do you think visually and be more creative as a designer he's designed software experiences and services using a human centered approach and collaborative attitude but as an author he's written the two best selling books that you probably heard about or seen it somewhere on sketchnoting the sketchnoting handbook and the sketchnote workbook right he also conducts online and in person workshops where he teaches students how to learn sketchnoting techniques and build their own creative confidence He's also a rockstar illustrator for very famous books like Rework, Remote, The Hundred Dollar Startups, and The Little Book of Talent. As a founder, he's also created the Sketchnote Army, a showcase of sketchnoters and their work from around the world. He's also a family man, a husband, father, happily living and working uh, in Wisconsin, cheering for his team, the Green Bay Packers. And if you ever thought about like. You know, I have all these like notes I want to take in a meeting and you know, visualize my ideas. But you're like, you know, I really am not that good of a illustrator or a sketcher or something. You don't have to be. And that's where Mike is going to help you out. So if you really want to get better at sketchnoting, I would say check out roaddesign.com. The links are going to be literally in the show notes and you can use the code road40 r o h d e 40 for 40% off to buy his books. And we're going to link to all these um Uh, awesome things in the show notes. But without further ado, Mike, welcome to the show, man. Super excited to have you. Good to be here, Janiel. It's really fun to talk with you. Yeah, man. It's just like I'm. It's Saturday afternoon, um, 2 p.m. or 2:17 p.m. in cen- in Central Time in Dallas, and I am excited to be talking with you. Like this is something I just really enjoy. Like having talked to you before. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but like maybe. I want to say eight years ago, or maybe a little bit less, I'd actually bought your sketchnoting book and tried to like be mm. a sketchnoter. <laughs> so this is like coming full circle now, from like buying an author's yeah. book to finally interviewing him. Like I don't know, like I guess I'm living the American dream right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean that's uh, that seems like the the uh, the cycle of my book too. That there was sort of an initial bunch of people that got into it and liked it, and then there's been continuing to be people that discover it even almost 10 years i mean in next year it will be 10 years since that book was launched and there's still people who've never heard it and discover it and fall in love with it and make use of the ideas so you know one of the, one of my first things i'll say is the things that you do have a longer life than you realize sometimes mm-hmm. so when you're doing them make sure that you do the best quality you can because <laughs> uh sometimes the things that you don't want to last the longest or that you don't you oh just God. do it as a throwaway you know have the most impact that's happened so many times with blog posts or or Instagram posts or tweets right the one that you just like ah eh, just throw it out there and suddenly it takes off and the one that you, that you you know you uh you work over and you make it perfect and you like do all this great stuff yeah nobody cares crickets <laughs> so true and I want to like certainly just go back all the way to your childhood. Like it's like like all the way like you turn way so, back. Way back. Yeah. So like were you always in the creative art space growing up or did you know that you wanted to get in the design space? Like what was your childhood like around your hobbies and things that interested you? Yeah, I mean as a kid I didn't know that there was a creative anything, right? You're just a kid, you know, you ride your bike and you play with your friends and the one thing that probably was unique about me is um We grew up in a probably a lower middle class family. We didn't have a lot, but if we wanted to make things, my mom and dad were very encouraging to for me to make stuff. So um I always drew since I was a little kid and I think there was never anything that stopped me like no one really got on my case at school or so there wasn't anyone to really deter me from that path. So drawing was just a natural thing that I just kept doing where you know what I discover is a lot of kids when they get to middle school like it's not cool or somebody's really good and so you stop or whatever the case was maybe i was the kid that was good enough to keep going i don't know but i've always drawn so as an example i loved comic books but i couldn't afford that many i would get a few here and there but i would make my own comic books i made my own characters wow. i would fold up you know 
printer paper and drawing them. I made my own newspapers. Um, as a kid, I lived, I grew up in Chicago and we lived in an apartment. We were in the bottom uh, apartment of this building, which is basically the basement. So sometimes we would have these floods where I'm, I'd wake up and there's oh water in my room. Um, you know, so we eventually solved that. But uh, one of the cool things was at the top of our room were these windows and I took advantage of those. So I was a pretty good artist and I loved a few things. I loved hot rod cars and superheroes. So I, I, what I would do is I would take these sheets of paper and I would draw, you know, spend time drawing a car or whatever I thought my friends would buy. And I would put them in the windows at the top of my room, right? Because I'm in a basement. So you put them in the top. And it was like a showcase. The kids would come by. Oh, that's a really good, cool drawing. Can I buy that one? So I would sell it to them for a nickel. And then um, what's really interesting is like, so all summer I would do this. I would sell these pictures. New ones would go up every Tuesday or whatever, whenever I got them. And I would sell all of them. And I kept the money. And then I basically took all my friends to the local like convenience store and we'd have a party. We would buy stuff like candy and we would enjoy it. So it wasn't really even about the money. It was more about the the excitement of creating something, somebody liking it and buying it, and then celebrating together by taking all the earnings and like spending it on the community. So I guess that's been true through my career. When I look back, that that sort of mindset has still been true in much of what I do. So I see this latent talent or hobby or passion that you have as a kid of just sketching, drawing those comics. And then years later, you're working in the industry as a designer and you're designing experiences, products for other companies. What made you realize that the way you take sketchnoting, your framework is something that can help a lot of other people? How did the whole genesis come about? Like, hey, I mm. should you know, write a, a book on, on, on sketchnoting. That's a pretty interesting story. Um, it, there's a couple of parts to it. Number one, it was probably around 2006. I got really into technology. So um, I grew up pretty analog. And then my dad, when I was a kid, he knew that the technology stuff was coming. So he immediately bought like um, all kinds of computers. We were Computers were around for us. You know, they weren't fancy. We had like Commodore 64s and old uh, IBM amber screen PCs, like his whole goal was don't be afraid of the computer. You can learn how to manage it. You need to use it and find out how it works because it's going to benefit you in the future, which it has greatly. Right. So we had computers around all the time. If you still have them, you would get a fortune <laughs> for them. If you still have any of those. Yeah, I don't left. know. <laughs> I'm not sure if my dad ever kept them. I think they probably died or something. Um, I've got some old Macs and stuff, which uh, certainly could have value. But yeah, so sort of being not afraid of this technology was a good thing. But on the other side of it, like I got so into it that I started typing a lot of my notes, which is fine. Like I still do that now, but I sort of lost the drawing part of it after I got out of college. And so I got into this phase where everything was technology focused, but I was really getting frustrated with it. So I thought, well, I need to go back to analog, but I wasn't really sure how to get back into it. And so I ended up with these I just happened to have these big, I think they were like eight and a half by 11 notebooks with lined paper. And the first thing I thought is, well, I should use a pencil because if I make a mistake, I can fix it. And then I should probably do notes like when I type them, I need to try and write everything down. But what I found was uh, it became a huge burden to make notes this way because I felt like I was always under pressure. I, I would get to the end and feel like I, I must have missed something. I really didn't use the eraser to the pencil because there was so much content. And then when I went and looked at these pages and pages of pencil notes, like I don't want to go back through them and find out what was valuable in there. It's just too much pain to do that. So um, I realized pretty quickly that this wasn't a solution. Uh, so this was around beginning of 2007. I said, it has to be a different way. As a designer, I'm often faced with constraints. Things like, hey, you only have two colors with the logo that you can use on that project or... It's got to be done by Friday. There's always a constraint as a designer in many, many industries. But specifically in this space, I said, what if I put a constraint on myself? What if I just, what if I inverted what I was doing this other way? What if I, uh, if you ever watch Seinfeld, George Costanza, there's one episode where George decides to do everything opposite of what George would do and suddenly his life gets better, right? He has a beautiful girlfriend and he gets a great job and like a nice car, all that stuff. So I started to do that. I did the George Costanza I went from this big book to a little pocket moleskin 
that I purchased at a bookstore, but I didn't know what to do with it. It was too beautiful to use it. So it just laid around for, I don't know, a couple months. So I'm going to use that pocket notebook because it's been sitting here and it's small. And the thought was, if I use a small notebook, it sort of limits me from writing too much. It's a reminder, a constant reminder that I don't have much space to write in. And the second thing I did is, is I gave up the pencil for a gel pen. I think it was a Pilot G2. So those are my two tools. I wanted them to be completely pocketable so I could carry everything in my pocket. I didn't have to carry bags or anything. And I went to a conference in Chicago, which is about a train ride away from Milwaukee, where I live. And uh, went to this design conference and was sitting there. And I found that this note-taking method really was attractive because I was actually doing analysis in the moment. I was listening. I was making decisions. And then I was drawing it on these small pages with the pen. And what the dynamic of that was, again, the pages are small. I can't write that much. And I'm using a pen, so I have to be careful about what I write. So I'm doing a lot more um, analysis in my mind and then drawing that down and starting to, to use some of my design skills, like lettering. I love lettering. So I started doing lettering. I started drawing pictures that I saw in the presentations up on the screen or ideas that were popping in my head. I was capturing these and I was still writing some text. And at the end of the day, I think I had maybe eight or maybe nine pages or something. So it was really compact. It was really fun to do. I enjoyed the process. And then I, I was able to flip through the whole day's notes like within a minute or two and get a lot of the, the nuggets that I knew I would use tomorrow when I got back to the office. So that was really the moment where I knew it was valuable for me. When I knew it was valuable for other people was when I posted it on social media. And at the time, in 2007, the hot social media platform was uh, Flickr, by the way. So I put these up and actually some of the author, the, some of the presenters were on there and they thought they were pretty cool, which is a nice, you know, a nice uh, bump, like psychological bump. But um, what really caught my attention were people that were not at the event, maybe they were in Europe or Asia or somewhere else, and were looking at these and saying, hey, these are really cool. I get a pretty good sense of like what you were learning is valuable. And if that event came near me, I would consider going, right? Because it seems like good quality. So that that was the part that I thought, okay, there must be other people like me who struggle yeah. with note-taking, who feel like they either write too much and they never look at it and it feels like a burden. And so this was the way out for me. And I thought, okay, this has to be a way out for somebody else too. So I need to start doing more of it and sharing it. So that's really the spark that made this all happen. You had this awesome spark going. I wonder if after the, because of the spark, did you first get to do illustration for famous books or did you end up getting the book deal first? What happened first? Well, these were happening all kind of around the same time. So this is 2007. Um, my first okay. book illustration project was around 2010, and that was Rework uh, with the guys at uh, Basecamp, oh which God, at the time it was book. called 37 Signals, you know, mm -hmm. Jason and David. Um, so the interesting thing is one of them sort of led to the other. So I was doing these sketch notes. The first one I did in Chicago was a design conference. The second one that I did was an event that Jason and David created and spoke at along with um, a few other people in Chicago. So that was number two. When they saw the sketch notes, they posted them on their blog, which suddenly got all this attention from the development community. So that was the first real community that noticed this stuff. So they were very aware of the work that I was doing because I was doing sketch noting in their space at their conference. And they invited me in, in the future to come back and be like the sketch noter at, at their event. You were at their event yeah. and they didn't ask you to do the sketch. You just, you just did it on your own volition. You just did it and shared it. Yeah, I just went there on my own wow. because I was, remember, this is only like the second time I tried it. This is, I think I did that. Uh, the, the other one I did in, was it February or March? And then this event that they put on was like in May or June. So, I mean, this is like the second event that I attended. So, I was still in like, can this thing work? Like, what's the boundaries of it? How do I do it? What's the right way to do it? Like, I think I naturally thought this way. And when I look back in time, when I look back to my college years, I was actually doing this sketchnoting stuff. I didn't have a name for it. But like my notes in design class were all drawings and writing and visualizations. And this is just the way I thought. I don't know. I lost my way somewhere in the in the middle. And this sort of like brought me back to my natural way of being. So, but it was still being formed when they saw it and they really liked it. And they, so the couple things I think that they realized 
and that they've told me is um, they like my visualization because it was really clear and bold, tend to be black and white. Um, and they knew that I understood their space. I knew their products. I knew their mindset because I was at their conferences and I was I could show that I did because my work was public, right? So they already had two positive things to go on. So when they thought, well, who can we illustrate our book? They thought of me. So that uh, sort of doing that on my own and sort of having stuff out there for them to be aware of was a huge foundational part that I didn't even realize, like, I couldn't have planned this, right? It's just the way things worked out. So it ended up being a, you know, a good thing. Oh, my God. And then once you become an illustrator for a best-selling book, is it fair to say that other potential high, like, you know, famous authors also contact you? Because they're like, oh, who illustrated the book for Rework? Is that how it works? Right. Yeah, it does. Um, one of the challenges... Um, one of the byproducts of uh, their book is they put all the credits in the back of the book. So a lot of times people, if they don't see it in the front, they just forget. My name is in that book, but okay. it's way in the back. So people have to hunt for it a little bit. I would say there's downs that that's the downside is like, it's not immediately apparent that I did the illustrations. And that's because Jason David wanted to shake up what a book looked like. That was their thinking. Let's get right to the meat of it, which is a cool idea. The good thing is, the people that are really dedicated and want to find out who did it will find me. So in some ways it's kind yes. of like a filter for good quality. So there's, there's, yeah. it's not necessarily a bad thing either, but yeah, having that first one, it's, I've always believed that like the first one leads to the next one. Once you can lean, they can leverage on that first one. Now you can go to someone and say, yeah, I did the illustrations for WeWork, right? It makes it possible to do something else. So that's, that's pretty important. Oh my God. And then you're doing this illustration. So how does a book deal happen? Like you just like, like go to a publishing house and say that you've got this amazing idea for helping people learn Sketchnote or they have people out on the ground that notice some trending stuff like your notes going trendy and then just tell you like, or ask you, can you make a book about this? Well, that, that's another interesting story. So um, I had been doing it about five years. So I started this in like 2007. So five years later, it's now our I guess four years later, 2009, 2010, somewhere in there. I went to lunch with a friend in, in Portland. His name is Von Glitchka. You can find him online. He's an amazing illustrator in his own right. And we were having dinner and he's like, Mike, you have to write a book about this sketchnoting stuff. He worked for Peach Pit. He was an author for Peach Pit. And he had an editor who he thought would be into it. And so he said, dude, you got to make a book. Um, I'm going to make a connection for you. And there were other friends too. My friend Patrick Roan was bothering me, like saying, you got to make a book about this and teach other people. So about five years in, there were there was voices in my head, like saying, make a book, make a book. And I kept thinking like, I, I don't, am I really the, am I really the right person to do this? Like, you know, I had the old imposter syndrome kind of thing, probably some Midwestern, you know, um, whatever, like be nice and, you know, don't think you're too big for your shoes and all that stuff it was probably mixed in there. But anyway, so Vaughn said, Hey, I'm going to make an introduction to my editor. So uh, look for an email. So he had just dropped off my wife and I at our hotel after we had dinner. And he, his wife was driving and he was in the passenger seat. I guess he had his laptop with him uh, at the time. So the next thing you know, we get up to our hotel room and there's an already an email. He had typed the email while he was sitting in the car as we left to go into the hotel to his editor, Nikki, saying, Hey, my friend Mike has this really cool idea. I think it would make a good book. You should talk. So that then opened up the discussion with Peach Pit as a publisher, and we just started talking. We hit it off. Um, Nikki had some great ideas and knew how to run a publishing house to make a book and to knew what like boundaries she could push to make something really different. She had ideas that I wasn't even aware of, and she was my, I you know I think the big advantage is she was my um, lobbyist inside the company for this book idea. So she really pushed hard for it. She stood up for me. She told me what to do and what not to do. So having somebody in the publishing industry who's got some guidance for you can be valuable, I think. Wow. So that's something to think about. And when people see that you published a book, like if you don't want me asking, how many books have been sold right now on Sketchnote, that you, that your book? That's a good question. I ask that about every year. I haven't done that yet this year. I know we've surpassed 50,000 units altogether. Wow. So that includes printed books, that includes digital books, that includes all the translations too. So it's been translated, I think, in eight languages now. So um, it's a tough book to translate because it's so visual. So you have to have a commitment from a publisher to almost hire an illustrator 
or a designer to kind of redo it in their language. So that's why it doesn't, it's not as easy to translate, but I think in the languages that it's in, it's really sparked. Uh, in many, in one case in Germany, it's a huge, there's a huge community of sketch noting in, in Germany specifically, but in other countries too. So yeah, so it's, it's about there. It's probably beyond that now. And you know, it was all guerrilla marketing. Like we had no budgets. They didn't give me any money to market it. It was all me trying oh. to figure out interesting ways to make it happen. So I learned a lot by marketing the books uh, that has helped me a lot in marketing in general, I think. Well, I mean, I would assume that if you got a deal with from Peachpit, isn't it assumed that they have all the shelf space and Barnes & Noble and airport, you know, kiosks and stuff and they just put your book there? Is that not how it works and it just like goes viral like that? That's what you would think, but I think depending on your publisher. So a lot of people don't know there's sort of two general branches of publishing. There's tech publication, which is where I ended up. So that's like the books on Photoshop or your favorite code editor or, you know, O'Reilly sort of lives in that space. And then there's um, uh, trade publication. That's the stuff when you're at an airport, if you ever go to an airport and you see it in a bookstore, that's yeah. trade publication. So that's like, you know, like Rework was a book like that or... Um, Tim Ferriss's books or yes. any of those books that you would see on a bookshelf, that's trade. And they have, they typically will offer you more of a budget and the the timeframes are much longer. Um, but they, the downside of a trade publication, depending on what you're doing, is they're super formulaic. Like you have to fit into the structure that they want to produce a book in. And oh. if you veer out from that in any way, they're going to squeeze you into their format typically, unless you've got some heavy leverage, oh right? So like God. if I, yeah, so if I'd gone to, let's say Random House, just to pick a name, like thinking about like, at yeah. least at this time, right? I think now, I think now trade publications have changed. I think books like Rework and Remote and a bunch of other books, a couple of them I've illustrated, but many others have sort of broken this down a little bit to where they're accepting of more visuals. So I think today it's maybe a little different story that they're more mm -hmm. flexible, um, right? But at the time... Like if I went to the trade pubs and I had this idea for this book, they'd say, oh yeah, you can't have orange. You can't do illustrations. You can't oh do handwritten text font. Like all the things that make that book unique, yeah. they would have squeezed it out like a lemon, right? So by going to the tech press and by going to Nikki, who knew the tech press and knew what boundaries she could push, we were able to craft something. The other thing I'll say is in trade pub, you probably lose a little bit of control. Like you're sort of dependent on them. You might get a better uh, advance, which is basically money to work on the book and not do something Bigger else, budget. right? It's like, you know, mm -hmm. opportunity cost, really basically covering opportunity cost, right? So you would get a probably a bigger front end budget. The timelines are longer. Uh, on my side, on the trade publication side, the timeline was really short. We did the, the sketchnote handbook in nine months from beginning to end. Uh, we also did a video, which many people don't know. I had a friend who I worked with, Brian, who mm -hmm. shot video. So there's a video component to the book. And we did all that wow. in nine months, too. So we wrote the whole thing. The other thing I'll say, the big advantage that I saw, at least in my situation with the with the tech press, I had complete control. So because Nikki was on my side, she knew what we wanted to do and lobbied for me. I wrote the text. Um, I illustrated and, and, most and of sorry, the pieces. Um, I Yeah. I think I just got confused a little bit. So I just wanted to like ask you if I was get following along correctly. Mm -hmm. The two types of book publishings that are happen is when you said it's like the tech press and the one is the trade publication, right? Trade trade and, publication, yeah. And then you, the tech press is more of like the the rework, the Tim Ferriss books, right? The mainstream ones or or something like that. It's just the opposite. Yeah, trade publication is stuff that you see in Barnes and Noble. So think of trade okay. as like. Uh, consumer, consumer, maybe right, and consumer, tech press okay. is like super niche. Niche, yeah. okay, okay. So it's like consumer it, and niche tech technical press. So like O'Reilly, yes. like yes, you know, most yeah. people are not going to buy a book on C plus plus, right? It's going to yeah. be a specific niche of yeah. people that want that. Or design wow. books are very niche too, right? So yeah. um, by going to the tech press, which had more latitude, because typically a tech press book at Peachpit. They would do four color printing. They could do screens because they're doing like Photoshop and Illustrator, right? They have yeah. to show color. So True. we took that, we took the space to make that color and we said, we're going to spend it differently. We're going to use a, a solid um, spot color, orange with black. We're going to round the corners on the book so it feels kind of like a moleskin. We did a special cover treatment that made it matte. So it was kind of like when you, you don't yes. get fingerprints. 
The paper yeah. was thicker. Uh, we had it was mostly illustrated. Um, for the text, I created a typeface out of my handwriting, and we used that. So I mean, oh it was like there were so many weird things about this book that we pushed the boundaries, and I had oh total control. God. So because I was a print designer in my history. Not only did I write the book and illustrate it, I also secured all the samples. So I reached out to every person in that book and got their rights to use the, their samples. Then um, when it oh came to production, God. after we did editing, I did all the production work because I was a production designer. So I, from yeah. the minute we started writing the book to handing it off to the presses, I did all that work in the middle just because of my unique situation. Now, that's not everybody oh. has that opportunity. But the flexibility yeah. and the power to do what we wanted really – so the book that you see is because of all those elements being available, right? So when you're weighing decisions, yeah, I mean trade press or the you know public press could have given me a lot more money. But uh, the technology press gave me a lot more yeah. latitude, flexibility, Freedom. control. Like that was more important to me. Because now and now looking back, like I have a lot more control over the whole brand and sort of yeah. owning it and you know, it also trained me to be a better marketer because I had to think about yeah. who is my audience and how do I reach them, right? I didn't just hand it off to some department and then have no control. It sort of forced and, me to really learn how this worked. And speaking of money, you said that because, you know, I mean, I might have an assumption like, oh, you know, when Mike published a book, I saw it somewhere. He made a million dollars. So yeah, what would your take on that be? Like when, when people see that, oh, you published a book, is it a fair assumption? Like, oh my God, he's like, He's made it because he's made 50,000 sales in the books. He's probably getting like a killer royalty and stuff. You know, I do get royalties still. I'm fortunate that this book has continued to sell. So that's something we could not have predicted, right? That it would sell so well and continue to sell 10 years later. But, you know, my advance was not that big. I think I got $5,000 to do the design work. So like they would have hired someone inside to do the layout of the book. I did all that. I did all the mm -hmm. illustration, all that stuff. And you know, probably was undervalued. I think my advance was probably close to that, probably like five grand. So let's say I got about 10 grand to do all the writing, to do all the illustration, to find all the samples, to do all the production and hand it to the printer. And I still I had a day job at the same time, right? So I'm doing this all on nights oh and God. weekends and whenever I can squeeze it in, right? So, and in nine yeah. months. So you think about all those things like mixing together. So when you think of it that way, 10 grand is not much money for all the work that yeah. was done. It was hours and hours and hours of work. So yeah. if I really thought about it like a, you know, I was maybe making three bucks an hour. I don't know, <laughs> something yeah. like that, right? But again, so my my editor was really good at this. And I also hired um, a literary agent because uh, through another friend, another author. And he liked the idea too. And he advised me, he told me all the stuff about the difference between trade press and tech press and why you should yeah. consider one over the other and the advantages. So I really believed in having a, 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 an agent because they were on my side no matter what, even though yes. they, you know, they're taking a cut of the work, but I can ask them questions that would be weird or I'm not sure. Like yeah. I could ask something of a publisher and like they have a bias, maybe not tell me everything. I don't think they would, but having someone to ask questions was worth that value and it's been a good relationship. But I think Nikki inside the publishing house was really clear on, you know, uh, what to expect. Like, hey, look, you're not going to be a millionaire writing a book. Oh, she was upfront about it. Yeah, she was pretty upfront about it. Like, Oh, mm -hmm. okay. So delusion yeah. that yeah. you might so, have, like, anybody might have it as gone. Like, oh, you're not going to make like a million, yeah. a couple million dollars from this. Okay. Well, and then she said like, hey, look, a lot of the, so here's our goal. We want to write this book. We're going to make it evergreen. So in other words, it could last for 10 years and still be relevant. Like we're not going to make it technology wow. dependent, right? Yeah. So she had a mind. She'd seen all this stuff before and she wanted to do something really different, something that could continue to sell, which has worked yeah. out. Um, you know, and so she sort of laid out that and said, you know, our goal is to basically earn out the advance. So let's say they give you $5,000. Yeah. You need to earn back, like in sales, you have to earn that money back for them to break to consider it broke even, right? I see. And then you get a percentage. So once you break even, then they start giving you royalties, which is a percentage of the sale that they make. Yeah. Um, having the agent, he was able to yeah. negotiate for a higher percentage, which I think, I think we scaled it up. Like we, it was sort of based on like if it's between zero and this number, it's this percentage, and from that percentage yeah. to this percentage. So it kind of it upscaled as like if so basically it said if we do a good job and we sell lots of books 
and they last a long time, then our royalty rate's going to go up because we proved that we did a good job and we should get more of a percentage, right? Yeah. So he's, he structured it that way. Um, so the goal was to do that because so many books, like, I don't know what the percentage is. Maybe it's eight out of 10 or maybe it's worse than that. Maybe it's five out of 20 will earn their advance. There are very few. I know several people who wrote books and never earned their advance back. So to earn the advance is huge. We did it within nine months. So like, And what's the... Like, what's the incentive for, like, a writer to earn the advance? Like, let's say you write a book, but you never earned the publishing house their advance. Does that mean that they're not going to work with you again on another book? Because you never broke even with them. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. They might oh. think, I mean, it could be anything. It could be the market's not ready for it. It could be yeah. uh, our t we didn't approach the topic the right way. It could be yeah. buyers are fickle and they don't know what they want. Or we True. launched at a time when something else was more popular and we just missed it, right? Fair. So there could be all kinds of reasons why. Yeah. Uh, if you don't earn your advance out and they and the publisher doesn't feel like um, the book is worth holding on to, sometimes they'll revert the rights to you. So I had a friend who that happened to. They basically gave her all the rights to the book, the manuscript, because wow. it's a, it's copyrighted in her name. So yeah. if she wanted to republish it on Kickstarter yeah. five years later, she could. Right. So um, so that can happen. Like in your case, like you 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 wrote the the book, the sketchnote brand that you've created, like. Since the first book was published like 10 years in the making, you created the, um, the Sketchnote Army's podcast now. There's so many like peripheral things you've created around the main thing. Like, is that brand yours or did you negotiate from the get-go that, hey, whatever I create with my own podcast and Sketchnoting, like if I want to sell a course on it, I want to do something around it, build my own brand, you own the rights. Like, Right, yeah. If, if you look inside the book, it's copyrighted to me, you know, so... Okay. Um, we they have they sort of have a first right to refusal if I'm going to write a book. So if I want to do another book, I need yeah. to go to them. Um, and I, you know, I have two books out. We um, there's a there's a whole story about a third book that we considered, but things changed uh, at the publishing house and they weren't interested. And because my team was missing, I wasn't interested either. Like so, it was a an agreed like let's walk away from this third book. But there could have been a third book, right? And I was more than happy to work with them because they gave me the flexibility, right? So, um, yeah, so you're right. You've noticed correctly that, that the books were a foundational element for all kinds of stuff. So, you know, you were saying like, you know, what's the value of a book? Well, part of it is you need to love that the book exists. You need like Austin Kleon, my friend Austin Kleon says, you should write a book that you think uh, should exist, something that you want to exist. And that's when you produce really good books. So you have to have a passion on your own to produce it and a reason why you want this message in the world. So that's going to be a lot more motivational than even money, I think. Um, but then the idea is that once you build it, now you've got sort of like a really expensive business card that gets you in the door to speak at events. I know the book what do you mean gave by me that? opportunities because I'm so because I wrote this book and like say uh, when we first launched it, user experience designers and other designers really liked it. So I started getting calls from companies. That said, hey, can you come in and talk to our group and tell us about sketchnoting and apply it to our business? So I might come in and teach the basics, and then we would take a challenge they had inside. Like one company uh, said, hey, we've got, we have all these, uh, we have this PowerPoint that we produce, but we don't, we're kind of bored by it. Can you help us turn it into something else? So we worked together, and I, they had, they went through their PowerPoint, and we sketched icons for all of it, and we thought of different st uh, strategies for how they could use these images differently. And that led to turning those uh, sketches into artwork as a designer. So that's an example of a design thing in the education space, which happened about five years, I guess, five years later, suddenly educators discovered the sketch noting concept and they found like, Hey, my kids pay attention. They feel uh, a lot more interested in the content that we're producing and they're able to use the drawing and doodling that they want to do, but are, we always have to stop them. Now we can actually use it in classes so could would you come out and talk to our school district? Would you come out and talk to this group of teachers? Usually there's a passionate teacher that will bother either their principal or their district into hiring me, and then they would fly me out. I would come and do a keynote speech or do a workshop with them to teach them the basics so they could integrate it and and then start using it in their classrooms. And this happened because of your book? Yep, exactly. Because I'm seen as a... I guess a, th a thought leader. Yeah, a thought leader, an expert in this space, having written this kind of, I guess it's considered a classic book now. So 
<laughs> I mean, there's many others that have come after, but it's always seen as this classic. So that's kind of you're the OG. that's a nice byproduct, you know. Yeah, exactly. I'm the OG of uh, sketch noting, and like when you're doing this, like I didn't plan any of this. I didn't. We were just hoping that people would will people buy it. I don't know. Yeah. We're gonna do it because we love it, and we think we're gonna do a really good job. So when you buy this book and you hold it in your hands, you're gonna love it. And that's all we could really control. Once we released it into the world, it's really was up to the world to decide. Is this going to be something big, yeah. or it could have fizzled and never been heard of, right? Like, but it turned out. It turned True. out to be the opposite. It turned out. To I mean, be there's so many thing. books. Like, I'm in a library right now. Like, I'm literally in a library, and then there's so many books yeah. here that you can't see. But it's just like, I don't even know if like the rest of the world has heard about it. It's there on the shelf, and right. What I took away from you is this interesting concept of like looking at books is not just a way to make a massive payday, but it's more of like. Business cards are gone. I don't even remember the last time I gave someone a business card, but I like this idea that book can be a really expensive business card where if you meet someone, you can say, hey, by the way, I wrote a book and I'm going to give you a copy of it. Yeah. And we'd love to hear your thoughts kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I, when we, so some of the, so I'll tell you some of the guerrilla tactics we did around the book. We, I knew I had no budget. Uh, Peach Pit was going to do minimal stuff with it. It's just because we're just one of 30 books they're releasing at that time, right? So, uh, we knew that we had to do more than that. So a couple things that we did that were really unique. Uh, as I was writing the first book, I wrote a blog post about every couple weeks to give updates. So I said, hey, first I made this announcement. I'm writing this book on sketchnoting. You can follow my blog and see what I'm going through. So I just got really diligent about taking pictures of what I was doing. I was really fortunate that it was a visual topic that pictures would be interesting to look at, right? You know, if you're just writing text, maybe it's not so interesting, but I would go to the cafe and shoot pictures of the sketches I was doing. Or if I would do thumbnail layouts of the pages, I would take pictures of those and write, hey, today, you know, this week we flew to San Francisco and I pitched the whole board on this concept and, you know, had like stories. I wrote a story every couple of weeks about the process of writing the book. And so people started following along. So it's the whole idea of this pre-release. You know, you, if you ever see books like, yeah, if you buy a pre-release, I get all these, you can get special stuff. We didn't do any of that. Ours was just sharing the information. So if you're an insider, you could be the first one to buy the book and you knew the whole story, right? So it became part of the buyer's story in that way. So that was something interesting we did. Another interesting tactic that we did was I had an awareness of people that I'd sort of paid attention to over time that I really liked the way they thought their their influence, um, their perspective on design, or just like I'd interacted with them and liked them. And so we had a whole list, an Excel spreadsheet of everybody that I wanted copies of the book to be sent to. And my publisher has been really great about sending books all over the world. Wow. If I can give him an address and information, that book will show up in a couple of weeks anywhere in the world that I wanted to go to. And how do you get the address? Um, I just, uh, a lot of times people will be on social media and say, oh, I, I wish I, you know, I saw this at the library. I wish I had this book. Sometimes I'll just DM them and say, hey, send me your address and your email oh. address and I'll put a submission in and then up two weeks later, the book will show up. Oh my God. So we, that is we you know, we, I just reached out to them. I had a, like, I had a template email that I would customize for each person and I sent out like a hundred of them. Yeah. I got probably 80, 80 replies back and we entered yeah. their information and like when the book released, they all had copies, yeah. which is now pretty standard, standard stuff yeah. these days. Um, and I continue to do that. If I see people or run into people, I say, hey, let me send you a copy of my books and I'll get their information and send it to them. Because I think if people are passionate enough to kind of reach out to me at a conference or yeah. talk to me, like by giving, like, this is my way of saying thank you. And again, yeah. like, I don't know where that book is going to go. Like that person yeah. could lead to a huge job for all I know. It could be a good speaking gig somewhere. I don't know. Maybe it leads to nothing, but ultimately they're going to have an impact somewhere and I have to seed it somehow. Right. Yeah. So you just it's sort of like you have to keep it's like a farmer. You keep putting seeds out. You don't know which oh ones are going to turn God. into plants. But if you throw enough out, you're going to have, you know, a field full of uh, crops that you can harvest later on. So that's the way I've always thought about all this stuff is like invest, 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 invest. So give away, give free talks, present, answer questions beyond like podcasting was another guerrilla tactic at the time podcasts were happening. So I appeared on podcasts all the time and um, it was a way to get the message out. So all these little things sort of built up into providing an awareness. And then once the book got out, then fans who loved it started presenting it. They would take pictures of the book. They would take pictures of their sketch notes. They would name check me 
all this stuff. Like I didn't have to do anything. They would just do it on their own. And then, you know, part of it was building a community around this. Like once this started rolling, then we started, I started noticing people popping up over and over again. So I started becoming friends with them. Then I started a podcast at Sketchnote Army, started to interview them. Like, why did you do this sketchnoting thing? How did you get in this visual space? How are you solving problems? So it starts building this community and we start building all this stuff. So when somebody enters into it, it feels like this, wow, there's all these people and they're all different kinds of people and there's all these resources. So if you come into it, like you wouldn't have to spend a dollar. And I really like the idea. The last thing I'll say is when I thought about the books, there was always sort of a scale of cost. So there's a ton of free stuff. And then there was samples. Those are free. And then at some point you would buy the book. So that would maybe be your cheapest entry. But then if you wanted to do a workshop, you know, then you could hire me to do that. Or if I did a workshop, you could buy it for somewhere. And I, I sort of had a whole sort of a curve of pricing. So there's all different entry points based on where you at, where, where you were at and where your mind was at so that you could enter in and you could always get free stuff. And then that was sponsored by you know, promotions in the podcast. So like I'll promote my own books and the last few seasons I've gotten um, sponsors who are in the space like marker makers or software makers or uh, screen covers for your iPad are three examples of sponsors who once I proved after five episodes, five seasons that I'm doing this, whether you, hey, you can, you can add on here, or you can not, I'm still going to do it. Right. So I think once they saw that commitment, it made it a lot easier for them to jump on and sponsor. So that's a just a couple of samples. There's probably more stuff that I'm not thinking of. Um, but there's it's just thinking about like starting with the passion for doing it and then finding creative ways to deliver. And then just opportunities open. You just need to be organically ready to kind of flex and adapt and move in the direction where things are moving. And this is the question I was just like dying to ask you as I was listening to it is I love this idea that you have of guerrilla marketing and giving your book free to influencers or people you think can potentially um, lead to a future collaboration with you, whatever that could be. And it's much better than, oh, let's keep in touch, the usual networking meetups or something like, oh, let me know if I can help you. You're already saying, here's a free copy of my book. So you're already providing value up front. You're helping them become better note takers, right? You're giving them something for free. So if you, let's say, and you're a master networker, let's say in a year you meet like thousand people and you give a list of those thousand people to Peach Pit, was there like a cutoff on like, okay, we can only give like this many free samples a year, but not more than that? Well, it's interesting. While Nikki was involved, they were, so they knew that they had limited budget, but the one thing they had facilities for was sending samples because they were an educational publisher. So their review copies is like built into the fabric of the company. That's like something they do. Uh, so there's a funny story. Nikki left. Uh, there were a new regime that came in. And someone uh, who's not my current uh, editor representative there reached out and said, hey, you know, your Amazon uh, reviews are really good. And we've, you know, sold a lot of books. We're going to stop sending these books out. And I wrote back and said, no, you don't understand. Like the, re the giving the books away is the heart of the whole thing. Like we have to keep this. And here's why. And I like laid out all the reasons and how we did it and how, what the impact was. And I said, I'll make you a deal. I'll limit it to one per month. Um, if that's, if that's what you need, but I want to have at least one per month that I can give away to somebody. Um, and I'll just email you. We'll have, we had a spread, we built a spreadsheet that they could follow, which I still, all the ones are there. I haven't counted. I should count and see how many people are in that list. Um, but they agreed. Okay, well, one one a month. And then after they started seeing like how effective it was, like they don't ask questions anymore. I just put names in there and like send them this. You know, sometimes they want a digital copy. Sometimes they, I think the physical copy is always my first priority because it just, it's such a tactile book, like to feel it and to smell it and to touch it like is so important. Uh, yeah. But I also understand some people just are not in a position to want that. Some people like digital. And so we, Sometimes I would even send one of each, right? So yeah, that, that, that did happen where they were questioning the value. And I pretty quickly clarified how valuable it was and why. And now they're totally on board. So when I tell them that I've got samples, they're, they go out immediately. They're looking for opportunities for me to hook up with other people. So I mean, I've been doing this for 10 years. Like I'm still selling their books. Like I think it's kind of hard to argue <laughs> against, the, against what I want to do, right? And I'm going to kind of put you in the spot here and ask you, does any story come to mind where you gave the book for free to someone 
and it led to a future collaboration. Maybe it was like they invited you to give a talk. Maybe they invited you to like for a paid workshop. Maybe they um, asked you to get something for them. So I just am trying to look for any kind of theme where you had this thesis where you want to give value upfront for free. And that led to in some way future collaboration or monetization. Does any story come to mind when you think of that? There's a few that come to mind. I know that um, the person who uh, discovered my books and let's, so here's an example. I think it was in New York City. There was a really passionate teacher who discovered my books. Um, and I, th I think I sent samples to him and he started to really promote it. He bothered his, um, his principal. They were down in Jamaica, New York. And his principal was like totally on board. Like, this is cool. Let's do it. So he reached out to me and said, hey, we want to have you come. Um, and we talked a little bit about it. And at the time, this is two years ago, he said, you know what? Um, there's all this paperwork that I'm not sure how to get through. But there's an opportunity to come and speak and do the keynote speech for our teachers for their last meeting before they go off in the summertime. You would have to come down to Brooklyn and speak to us. Would you be willing? I said, yeah. So I went through all the paperwork with another person. I flew in, went to New York, hung out, and we did a, I did a keynote, and then I did some workshops. And they really loved it. And so then I was in the, in the system, and that same guy from Jamaica said, okay, the next year is like, all right, now we got you. You're in the system. Now it's easy for me to request you. And so he brought me out. Just It was the last place I went before the pandemic in, in uh, January was to Jamaica, New York. And I taught this team of teachers for a whole day. So it's like one book led to like a keynote and workshops and stuff. Like, you know, I you just don't know. You, you hope that it works, but there's no guarantees. That's amazing. And, and I'm trying to figure out this missing link where how did you find out about this person that led to all this, you know, consulting for you? How did you figure out like this person needs a sample? Like, yeah, you send him the sample, but how did he even reach out to you? Or how did you figure out like this is a person I should send a sample to in the education space? That's a really good question. I, I think because I knew that I had an uphill battle. So not only do I have to convince people they have to draw, which I try to do in the book, but that, you know, it's a commitment. You're going to have to practice and do some work to do and make this thing work for you. I knew that. So I had to I had to start with a, a more generous starting position. So what I do, and I don't do it as much now, but I do keep an eye on Twitter. So if people are mentioning me on Twitter, and I have a service uh, called Mention, which will send me emails and say, hey, someone mentioned your book, or they'll mention you on Twitter. So I'll go on Twitter and I'll sort of look and sort of examine, like, what are they talking about? Like, a lot of times it'll be Hey, I just discovered this book my friend had. Oh, I wish I I wish I could take it or he wouldn't let me borrow it or something. So then I'll follow that person and then I'll direct message him and say, I can send you a copy of the book. Send me your address. Right. So I'm sort of actively looking for people that are uh, ready for it or that would be open to it. Like they're already reaching out or making a comment or having a discussion. So if if there's um, when in doubt, I will offer to send books to people because it's so easy for me. All I have to do is get their information. I send it to a person at Peach Pit and they deliver books in like two weeks, anywhere, pretty much any in the world, anywhere in the world, right? So um, I haven't had a problem having too many requests yet. That would be an awesome problem to have. I think my publisher would love like, okay, 10 years later, you got 10 people that are requesting the book. Like, I think we could find a way to make this happen, especially, you know, with the track record of if we sent out 10 books, one of those is probably going to turn into a bunch of sales, right? So yeah, I, I sort of actively look for people. So I have sort of a, my, my mindset is to be forward and to be generous by nature and to look for people that, and there's something in me that says, oh, that person looks like if I sent them a copy, they would dig it, right? So let's, um, let's send, let's offer. And, you know, pretty much, I don't think anyone's ever turned that down, that down before, unless they've got the book it's already. But something interesting that I've uh, sometimes done on occasion, depending on the person, and I learned this from my friend Ryder Carroll, who wrote the bullet journal method and sort of runs bullet journaling, is um, when he did his promotion of his first book, he sent two copies and he sent two Leuchtturm notebooks. The idea was you keep one book and one notebook for yourself, and then you give the other one to someone you think would like it, right? So now it's coming from a trusted friend so it already comes with some um, credibility, right? My friend gave this to me. It's this cool book and this notebook to actually do the work. So um, something I've been doing here and there is like, rather than just sending one book, I'll send two and I'll say, I sent you two books, keep one and give one to someone who you think 
is the right person to have that book. And maybe it sits around on their desk for six months until the right person comes, but eventually it will pay off. And again, it's sort of of a long game looking forward to we're building into this network and it may not pay off for maybe two years, but the, I think the karma that you send forward is comes back in a positive way. That's my belief. That's my observation. I absolutely am speechless because I love the forward thinking you have there, which is like not just one book, but two books. So these people can find other people who are interested in the topic and keep growing the movement. So it's just like blown my mind away. So Mike, how do people get in touch with you? How can they contact you if they have any question or how can my, uh, people just keep up with what you're doing these days? Yeah, um, there's a couple places that work well. One is uh, my website, roadesign.com. So there you can you know check out the books. You can see products I offer. You can see what sketch notes are. Sign up to my newsletter. It's about a monthly newsletter um, and that kind of stuff. Another place to go is sketchnotearmy.com. So there you can look through archives of different sketch notes. If you have a specific kind, like how do math and sketch notes work together, you can look for that. There's a podcast that I've been doing my 10th season. So there's a hundred episodes. You can listen to visual thinkers there. And then social media, the places I'm most active are Instagram and Twitter are the two spots where I probably hang out the most. And my handle there is uh, roadesign, R-O-H-D-E-S-I-G-N. And just say hello um, and, you know, reach out and, you know, you can see my stuff there on Instagram. It's sort of a mix of uh, some sketchnote stuff, some personal stuff, family stuff, work stuff, like a whole blend of things. It's just uh, me, but uh, I'm available to talk there if you want to reach out. Awesome. Just want to say I had a blast talking with you, Mike. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's been so good. I've been uh, looking forward to being on the show for a while and love listening to the episodes. So it's a true honor to be on and be represented with uh, all the cool people you've had on the show before me. Likewise. Thank you once again. Thanks. Have a great day. If you made it this far, you are what I call a Design MBA super fan. And I've got a gift for you, my super fan. Head over to designmba.show where you will find my email address. Email me one thing you learned from this podcast episode and I will get on a 30-minute call with you and help you in your career goals. See you in the next episode.